Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. First, we will attempt to untangle the EU's Digital Services Act with the help of Caitlin Chin, a fellow with the Strategic Technologies Program here at CSIS. Then we will turn to a conversation with Federico Steinberg, a visiting fellow with my program, the Europe-Russia-Eurasia Program, also here at CSIS, for a conversation about the state of the European economy. We hope you enjoy the show. We are thrilled to be joined by Caitlin Chin today for a conversation about the EU's Digital Services Act. Dun, dun, dun. This is a big deal. Caitlin is a fellow here at CSIS, and her research focuses on technology regulation in the United States and abroad. Caitlin, welcome to the Europhile. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so I'm going to give a brief overview of what this uh, Digital Services Act, or DSA, which is how we're going to refer to it from now on, does. The big idea, and after that, Caitlin, feel free to just debunk everything I've just said, is really content moderation online for illegal and or harmful content. That means really big platforms and intermediaries, hosting services, etc., will have to take down illegal content and goods and ensure traceability for the sellers on marketplaces, assess and counter major risks to society. That means disinformation, cyberbullying. They'll have to ban some targeted ads, particularly for children or ads that focus on personal data like health or sexual orientation. There are transparency provisions for why the algorithm recommend the things that they do. Certain researchers will get access to key data out of uh, those big companies. There are additional disclosures on the use of AI to remove content, the kinds of ads that are sold, who is the staff moderating content across the European Union. And then there's provisions on the recourse for users on why content was flagged or taken down. The oversight is shared between national regulatory authorities and the EU level, primarily the commission, and who that targets. That was the big uh, determination effort over the last few months. These are big, primarily 19 companies. The ones that we all know the best, of course, Meta, Twitter, formerly Twitter, now called X, Instagram, which is within Meta, TikTok, YouTube, Snapchat, LinkedIn, Google Search, and so many more. Uh, there are some shared attributes among them, which a lot of them are American, some are Chinese. But this is the landscape. Did I get that right, Caitlin? That is correct. So we have 19 companies. I believe almost all are American except for ByteDance, Alibaba. And then, of course, we have Booking.com and then one more, which I believe is a German shoe retailer. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. A lot of these companies share very similar attributes in that all of them offer content or services online. And also all of them have, or many of them, I should say, have come under scrutiny for things like online safety, how they promote or demote potentially harmful content and services online, how they use algorithms to target advertisements or target posts to its users. And all of them, at least these 19, are very popular. They have at least 45 million users in the EU and therefore have a pretty sizable impact, I would say, on both the economy but also society. So. Let's start with, because we're going to want to talk about different levels of impact for this. Let's talk about how you see the impact of the DSA on companies at both the technical level for the updates or changes potentially that need to be made, 
thinking of, you know, tweaks to algorithms, prohibition of dark patterns, et cetera. And then on the revenue level, which some of them have said they're concerned about the business model and how that how the DSA affects those business models. Right. There will definitely be costs, both in terms of compliance and then also potential revenue down the road. A lot of the requirements of the DSA are things that companies, many companies are already doing. So many companies have already started to build out ad transparency centers, for example, to display various ads um, and to show who is sponsoring the ads, especially after political ads came under a lot of fire in the 2016 and 2020 elections. A lot of companies have started to create mechanisms to allow users to flag potential harmful or illegal content and request takedowns. That said, the DSA will require more clear processes for all of these provisions, including ad transparency, notice and action takedown systems. It will require things that some companies aren't doing, like to conduct risk assessments, to identify and mitigate any potential harmful impacts on society, to formally and legally require large platforms to allow researchers access to data on their algorithms. So there will definitely be compliance costs for companies. The exact amount, I, th I think there are various studies that show different estimates, but... Probably um, depends on who funded the study, maybe. <laughs> I think we saw that with the GDPR, too, right? Lots of, lots of various estimates on how much the GDPR would potentially or allegedly cost the economy. But I would actually argue these are all things that companies should be doing anyways. Perhaps companies should be understanding how their algorithms work and how that might impact society. And companies should be giving users control and be able to explain at least how they moderate content or how they decide what's okay or not okay to have on these platforms. And then to your question, about revenue, some of these provisions could potentially impact revenue. For example, the ban or the prohibition on targeting behavioral advertisements towards children, for example. But I, I will say we also have to look at the Digital Services Act in the context of all of the other regulations going on in the EU and around the world. We have the GDPR, we have the Digital Markets Act, potentially soon to be the Artificial Intelligence Act. All of those laws as well will impact how companies target ads, how they combine data across platforms. So I, I do think that the Digital Services Act could potentially impact revenue. But at the end of the day, regulation is coming, whether these companies like it or not. And I think having clear rules on what companies should be doing or not doing could even help companies by giving them some sort of certainty or some clear guardrails or harmonized rules um, on how they can operate across the EU. Or at least give its yeah. users some degree of confidence in, in, the, in these companies. Now, yeah. you know, if you live in Washington, D.C., you've been hearing probably for years that, you know, Facebook supports regulation. You know, at the U.S. level, we haven't really seen any significant regulation, yeah. uh, at least legislatively. What has been the kind of U.S. company reaction to the the DSA coming into effect. Terry Breton, the European commissioner sort of in charge of this portfolio, sort of made a, a, a big performance of it on, on Twitter. So one, were there sort of big shocks from what the EU sort of announced and what he announced? And then what was, what's been the kind of U.S. reaction, knowing that this has been coming down the pipe for a long time? Right. We've been getting several reactions from the United States grouped into different buckets. I think one is the very generic you know, we believe in transparency and accountability. So we agree in principle with the Digital Services Act. And then there's, of course, the debates about which companies should be targeted by the Digital Services Act. We mentioned earlier that most of the companies designated as very large online platforms or very large online search engines are American companies. 
And that has led to a lot of debate about is the EU unfairly targeting U.S. companies? Is the EU trying to stifle innovation? Is this a matter of competition? And then also even within the companies, I guess maybe just naming one example, we have two companies right now designated as very large online search engines, Google and Bing. Google, of course, controls about 92% of the search market in the EU. Bing controls about 3%. So there is some debate and some, I'll just say, varying viewpoints about which services deserve to be included. But I, I mean, I, I think just going back to what users users deserve, I, I definitely think that things like more transparency and more user control in general is a good thing. And this, of course, is not the final list of companies that will ever be affected by the Digital Services Act. These are only the 19, at the moment, designated as very large companies subject to enhanced provisions. <laughs> Maybe I'll, I'll ask sort of the, the elephant in the room where, you know, a lot of the things that, that the DSA outlined that you're saying companies should be doing, well, there's, you know, one big company that seems to be going the exact opposite direction, Twitter, now known as <laughs> X, or now trying to be known as X. But Twitter is moving, I think, in the wrong direction when it comes to all the things that the EU has sort of outlined. And when Terry Bertone actually came to CSIS back in January, I asked him, so are you going to shut down Twitter? He sort of demurred and then sort of uh, threw uh, a little bit of shot across, I think, Elon Musk's bow. But what does this mean for Twitter? I mean, it seems to be moving in the exact opposite direction. Is it going to be shut down in Europe? <laughs> Let's just say I think that Twitter is a really good example of why so many people in the EU, including probably Terry Raton, thinks that the United States is a digital wild west where we just have very light regulations for technology companies. Then we have these billionaires like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, just doing whatever they want. And I don't think Elon Musk really did himself or the U.S. tech companies any favors with everything happening with X slash Twitter over the past 12 months. Twitter has raised a lot of concerns by firing a large amount, if not everybody, on its trust and safety team by instituting rules that have essentially made things like fraud, deception, misinformation much more prevalent on Twitter by allowing hate speech, by reversing some of its rules, by contradicting some of the commitments that it previously made, actually, under the EU Code of Practice on Disinformation. So I'm not surprised that Twitter has raised alarm bells in the EU. The Digital Services Act will we'll see how Twitter's compliance goes with that, if, if they still have a compliance team. Um, and we'll see what potential enforcement actions emerge in the in the near future. But I, I definitely think that Twitter is, is probably a really good example of why EU authorities are just so concerned with U.S. tech companies. And enforcement is going to be a big question mark in the next few months. There are different levels of, quote unquote, punishment. Ban is not the first one. But the fines could go up to 6% of global revenue for these companies, global annual revenue. This is a huge amount of money versus, the to be honest, the fines that is it the FTC levers on some American companies sometimes. But also just, I think, on the technical aspect of enforcement, it's going to be really difficult because it's still a little bit fragmented. The national authorities and the commission need to sign cooperation agreements to align on all the things that are about to come. And there are so many companies... There's already been complaints filed. So enforcement is going to be a big question mark. Can they staff up enough, fast enough to rise up to that challenge? Maybe a couple final questions to really wrap up on the transatlantic side of the DSA is one. Do you see an impact on transatlantic data flows? We've seen so many efforts over the last few years try to revive Privacy Shield, et cetera. Is the DSA going to be an impediment to this? 
And then the second one is, what do you think U.S. observers need to understand about why these laws are coming to light in the EU and vice versa? Are there things EU policymakers need to understand better to really interact with their U.S. counterparts on the importance of some of these laws? Yeah, to answer your first question on the impact of transatlantic data flows, I'll just say that, I mean, that's been in flux for a very long time, even before the Digital Services Act has taken effect. The EU has raised numerous concerns about U.S. tech companies and the U.S. government, so how U.S. tech companies collect and share personal information, but then also how U.S. government agencies are able to access personal information, including including information from EU citizens. I, I definitely think that those those tensions or that uncertainty will continue for a very long time, even outside of the Digital Services Act. I think one thing that the DSA, along with its companion, the Digital Markets Act, could potentially do is make compliance more difficult for U.S. tech companies. It's possible that some companies might decide that it's not worth offering certain services in the EU. I mean, we saw that with Meta not initially offering threads in the European Union. So I think down the road, we'll potentially see if these legal challenges escalate to the point where more companies decide that they either have to limit what they offer in the EU or potentially even pull out altogether. That's what Meta has warned about if the conversations around the EU-US data privacy framework don't go smoothly. And then to your second question, how did the Digital Services Act come about? What do EU policymakers need to understand? What do U.S. policymakers need to understand about the various concerns? I think that the Digital Services Act was a very long time coming. There have been concerns about online safety for a very long time. Over the past few years, we've seen things like disinformation surrounding elections or COVID-19 escalating on social media or on online forums or other other services. We've seen concerns about the mental health of children and teenagers really escalate in recent years. So I I think that the Digital Services Act is a response by EU lawmakers to say that, like, look, U.S. tech companies can't just do whatever they want. If the United States is not going to legislate, then, I mean, the EU is going to step in. And I, I guess one of the questions is, The EU is not the only jurisdiction that's interested in online safety and disinformation. There are a lot of other governments also looking at content moderation and online safety. So as more governments continue to legislate, I do think that'll raise really complicated questions about what happens when these laws intersect or if they um, conflict with each other. So that's going to be something that I think I'm keeping my eye out over the next few years. Caitlin, this has been, been super fascinating. It's such a real test, I think, of the quote-unquote Brussels effect of whether Brussels can sort of set regulations and then by doing that because of the power of the EU market, that then has sort of a boomerang effect, not just in Europe, but around the world. And so I guess the big question is, you know, does Twitter and, and other companies start to meet EU standards and therefore essentially is the EU basically regulating tech for us in, in the United States? Or does a company like Twitter say, you know what, we're just not going to bother with Europe? And so does the Brussels effect not work? And, and then suddenly you leave EU citizens with, with no threads, no Twitter. Oh my God, what are they going to do? You know, read a book. Um, uh, but so that creates sort of then a consumer question of whether you're actually leaving uh, consumers with less choice. So there is a lot to follow, I think, in the days, weeks, months ahead and how this is being implemented. We will be sure to have you back. Thank you so much for being here on the Eurofile. Thanks so much for having me.
We are thrilled to welcome Federico Steinberg back to the show for another assessment of Europe's economic outlook. We will pay particularly close attention to Germany after The Economist resurfaced the sick man of Europe narrative that had previously been applied to a sluggish German economy at the turn of the 21st century. Federico is a visiting fellow with the Europe-Russia-Eurasia program here at CSIS and is an expert in international political economy with a strong background and interest in international trade, finance, development, and European economic and monetary integration. He's also a senior analyst at the Elcano Royal Institute, lecturer in political economy at Madrid Universidad Autonoma, and special advisor to the High Representative for Foreign and Security Policy, that's Vice President of the European Commission, Josep Borrell. So Federico is sort of our ace in the hole that we have here at CSIS whenever we have any questions about what's going on with the European economy. So Federico, welcome to the show. And what is going on with the EU's economy right now? And can I just say, please talk to us like we're neophytes on the economy. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here at the podcast again. And it's true. Uh, the European economy is experiencing, uh, I would say, a significant slowdown, but we have to be clear. Uh, everybody was expecting a recession last year uh, after a Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, with, you know, Europe waking up to the fact that uh, Russian energy was going to be cut and we needed, you know, uh, a dramatic decoupling with Russia in, in Europe, particularly in Germany. Everybody was talking about a deep recession. There's a recession in Germany, a short recession. There's no recession in the Eurozone as a whole. At least Spain is supposed to be growing at 2.5%, Italy at more than 1%. France around 1%. So Germany, of course, has uh, you know particular idiosyncratic uh, problems that have to do with uh, structural issues that we can discuss and also more dependence on Russian gas uh, in the past. But overall, the fact that inflation is still with us and therefore the European Central Bank has had to raise interest rates not as fast and as much as the Fed, but in a similar vein, obviously has put some you know pressure on, on growth to go down. The surprise, however, is that unemployment is very low. It's around 7%, historical low, similar to the US. So actually, at Jackson Hall, which is this meeting of central bankers at the end of August, everybody was saying, we really don't understand what's going on, both in the US and in Europe, because basically, we don't know why inflation went up so fast. And we don't know why inflation is going down so fast without unemployment going up, which is, you know, the traditional thing that happens. So basically, Christine Lagarde, the, the ECB president, was saying, we have to accept that we are in an environment of very high uncertainty and complexity. And we really don't know, you know, what's going on with our economic models, our forecasting, because between the Russian invasion of Ukraine the pandemic and the monetary and fiscal stimulus that followed it, and also the enormous investments that we have to do to fight climate change, maybe something on the structure of the economy is changing and we are not really gasping it. So that that's my question, is out of all of these successive shocks, can we tell apart what part of inflation, this lower employment, is attributable to which shock exactly? Or is the uncertainty that Lagarde is talking about really due to the fact that we had all of these at the same time and we're still uh, trying to untangle all the different shocks and their impacts? Well, actually, it's very difficult to tell. One thing we know is that inflation has been driven more by demand, that is more fiscal spending and more monetary laxitude in the U.S., and more by supply factors in Europe. Basically, Europe imports most of its energy. So a supply shock means that energy that you import becomes more expensive. Uh, that happened last year. Now, fortunately, prices have gone down. 
And then, you know, supply chain problems that you are also familiar with in, in the United States. But basically, there's this uh, hypothesis that all these shocks sooner or later have to go away and we will be back to reasonable levels of inflation between 2 and 3% and interest rates will not go up by more. But then some people are saying, wait, maybe something structural is changing. We have, you know, the fragmentation of the global economy, the beginning of deglobalization. Some people say de-risking, decoupling, that's inflationary by nature. And then we have to make more investments, again, to fight climate change and in the new technologies. That is going to put, you know, pressure on the need to have more money available in the economy and more projects competing for that means an equilibrium rate of interest, you know, the neutral rate of interest, as central bankers say, might have gone up, so we will never go back to the interest rates and inflation levels before the pandemic. But again, Jerome Powell, the president of the Fed, was saying that basically we are trying to navigate uh, following the stars, and suddenly there are so many clouds, we don't see the stars, so it's tricky. So what they're going to do is, uh, what they say is, everything is going to be data dependent. So we'll wait for the numbers and we'll decide. Well, let's maybe walk through kind of a bit of a nar the narrative of what happened since the war in Ukraine, because this time last year, I think there was real panic concern that Europe was about to deindustrialize. We had the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act here in the United States, leading to, I'll use maybe a technical economic term, a freakout in Brussels and Berlin and other places of, my God, we're going to lose access to the US, U.S. market. And the thought was that, you know, you have a country like Germany with really energy intensive industries, BASF, you know, car manufacturers that were sort of dependent on cheap energy inputs, i.e. Russian gas, and that just went away. So now they're permanently sort of now seemingly uncompetitive. Yet somehow Europe didn't go into a grand tailspin. Germany got out of that economic tailspin. But now it, it still sort of seems that there's some real costs, lingering effects of, of the war. What about that kind of narrative that I just sort of outlined is, 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 on, uh, is on, the, on point? Or how would you characterize yeah, absolutely. the last I think, year and a half? Absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's correct. I mean, the, it was going to be the apocalypse uh, in you know, February, March, April 2022. The European economy did quite well, both in terms of substituting Russian gas with gas from you know other suppliers, LNG, Qatar, the US, Trinidad, Tobago, everywhere. That was done quite well. There was a, an element of savings that was also very, very important. And this you know goes to you know the, the population and the companies adjusting. Uh, Huge savings where people just decided to 20 turn down the taps uh, or turn turn down their 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 thermostats and turn the lights off. Exactly. Yeah. So so this was you know surprisingly well managed. Also, important subsidies on public transportation, for example, which are not, you know, sustainable forever. But then, you know, at the end of the day, the real economy is affected. So here you have to distinguish between the, the different countries. And Germany, as you say, is, is hit by, by this much more. Now, in Germany, you also have a very deep change on the mindset because Germany, as you said, basically did some economic reforms in the early 2000s, recovered, started exporting a lot to China, benefited from cheap uh, Russian gas. And there was this uh, idea on German elites that, you know, this was the way, the way to go. You trade more with China, you trade more with Russia, and they will become, you know like-minded or similar to the Western powers. So now you have realized, you have waken up to the fact that, you know, Russia is not going to change and China most likely is not going to change either, but you are very invested in, in China. So you have to do something. And with 
de-risking, decoupling the U.S., uh, putting export controls to China, outbound investment screening, and Europe doing the same thing. Germany is quite is quite worried. On top of that, the the German car industry is huge. It was very technologically advanced for the traditional cars, but now you have the revolution of electric vehicles and German cars and for that matter, other European cars are not prepared for that. There's an ongoing discussion in Europe about putting tariffs on Chinese EVs. So that's another thing. And the third aspect in Germany is that Germany has not invested a lot in the in the last decades. So basically, uh, this model worked for them, but you know they, they didn't invest much. Infrastructures in Germany are not as good as in other parts of Europe, and therefore there's a lack of you know elements to sustain a higher potential growth. So this means that there's a, an internal political discussion in, in Germany, also with a coalition government that's complicated, with the alternative for Deutschland pulling on, on possible future elections uh, over 20%. So it's very complicated for Germany. This, on the other hand, has opened up the possibility, and that's interesting, for a discussion within the European Union about the need for industrial policy, reactivation of some investments, which goes more into the French view of Europe, uh, a bit more dirigist, and you know that at the same time uh, is is associated with the the risks of uh, being too dependent, right? Europe has learned the hard way that interdependence can be weaponized, and we didn't think that was going to be the case. And in particular, Germany didn't think that they had to, you know, let go the cheap Russian gas. Yeah, this this strikes me as sort of another data point where historians will sort of revisit Angela Merkel's legacy and. It won't look as stellar, I think, by historians than it did in the moment, in part because your point about German infrastructure, you look at the German military basically being infrastructure that just they let completely decay and atrophy. Also on energy, the denuclearization. The question is now, Germany needs to repair its roads. It needs to invest, stimulate its economy, yet interest rates are high. So has it kind of missed that moment to really open up its pocketbook? Now, there's talk of a lot of subsidies for German industries so that they lower essentially to offset the higher energy prices. But won't that sort of undo the single market if Germany's spending to sort of subsidize its its industries that are kind of no longer really competitive? Absolutely. And this goes to, to another problem, which is how does the European Union respond to the IRA on the one hand and do Chinese subsidies on the other? So basically, this global subsidy race. Uh, Germany has deep cut pockets, so it has a balanced budget. Uh, it has a relatively low level of debt to GDP, but basically other European countries, especially Italy, do not. So this creates a, a problem. The response has to be European, ideally a federal European response with common uh, issuance of bonds to finance uh, common European projects that could be research and development related to uh, defense and security that, as, as you well know, in the US has provided a lot of innovations that then go to the market and increase productivity. Uh, of course, support for Ukraine, which is going to be necessary and is going to be financed by the EU as a whole. But that requires a change in the fiscal rules of the European Union and possibly moving towards a fiscal union. And domestically in Germany, a change in the debt break, which is you know their own uh, you know limitations. And, and again, this is a, another moment in which uh, even uh, the Germans are revising uh, their, their attitude towards uh, the response to the global financial crisis because everybody became German in Europe. Everybody tried to export their way out of recession. Europe became a, a region with a current account surplus. So the deficits were in the US and somewhere else. But now with trade wars and deglobalization, you are more vulnerable than before to, to trade wars. 
When you talked about the debt break, that's even within the governing coalition right now, there's no agreement on whether to do away with it. Actually, there seems to be commitment to sticking with it out of the meetings that they all just had coming into the fall. So that's that's a huge hurdle at the domestic level in Germany. I'm curious on the European level, obviously hindsight is 2020. I think it is important, Max, as you said, for us to just go over the Merkel years again, just to understand what at the time probably seemed like the best decision for them. But we understand today is setting up pretty long period of challenges, economic challenges for them. Is there a critical mass on the European level for a different strategy on how to right this economic ship? Is it coming mostly from France? Are we seeing other EU members ready to jump on a different theory of the case? Because we see, for example, even the Czech Republic, they're facing some really serious challenges. They're cutting even benefits for Ukraine refugees because they're trying to consolidate public finances. And in other places, we're also seeing serious challenges in even dispersing the money that is already coming from the EU for the recovery fund for next generation EU. Is there the emergence of a new theory or new ideas that you think can take the EU out of this economic rut that is pretty directly opposed to what Germany has been doing for over a decade? Well, in the European Union, things happen very slowly. And this is something that, you know, becomes surprising and sometimes frustrating, especially when you look at it from, from Washington and from other places. So I think there's there's the realization that uh, the international environment is 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 putting pressure on some member states like Germany or the Netherlands or other of the frugal countries are more willing to understand and accept that something has to be done. On the other hand, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the liberal finance minister uh, in Germany, Linder, uh, is basically, I would say, I wouldn't say captured because he believes in it, but basically uh, the, the percentage of, of European votes he represents is tiny, tiny, and he's blocking this, this sort of reform. On the other hand, as I said, there's talk of economic security. There's talk of the need to have a common response to the IRA. There's talk about the need to reform the fiscal rules within this semester. So the Spanish presidency of the European Council has as one of the top priorities, get the reform out by October. Uh, and that reform should include some new way to look at deficits and debt, which is you know a little bit more relaxed. But the, the natural way to overcome a problem is to say, okay, we'll still have rules, but at the same time, we're going to have new European bonds to finance specific European public goods. And that's the way to put you know, countries like Italy or Spain in favor of a framework that might be something that the Germans like, but on the other hand, Germany and other countries are willing to, to have more eurobonds, which is the impossible word to pronounce in Brussels. And so eurobonds will be put on the table uh, by the Spanish presidency it's it's not really permanent eurobonds because that's a little bit difficult to you know put on the on the table even the, the war is toxic i would say <laughs> the eurobonds e is something you, you don't say but you talk about permanent mechanisms for financing needed european public goods for example which that's is a mouthful. It, 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 yeah it's a way you know basically if you look at the story of 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 the united states in the 19th century you don't create the money you you have a necessity and then you find a way to finance that with a common instrument. So this is, you know, the necessities here are clear. Ukraine, reconstruction, uh, investment in technology, green transition, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you know, the, something's changing, but the negotiations are going to be difficult. Also because you have some countries, as you mentioned, which are very nationalistic. They're not willing to go deeper into European integration. Uh, and a final note is that without the UK, it's easier to do. 
which is a paradox because for everything else, not having the UK in is a problem. Right. So we always unpack this a little bit. So the, the stability and growth pact negotiations. So the stability and growth pact is essentially a, a pact between EU member states, Eurozone members that, you know, look, if you have the common currency, you can't just go out and spend recklessly because we're all tying our economies together with this one sort of monetary union similar to what American states have, where if you're Delaware, you can't run a budget deficit, same as if you're California. American states have to have a balanced budget. And the hope is that then the federal government comes in and provides the stimulus if there's a recession or provides the support. But in the European system, there's no sort of federal government that then comes in and pumps money. And that's what the EU was uh, started to do with next generation EU, this sort of 750 billion euro facility that a lot, much of it is going to Italy and Spain. The question I have, so that's just sort of all background. Doesn't Germany have a point here? I mean, isn't the kind of reform of stability and growth pact, the reform that Spain and others are pointing to is just to kind of not really enforce it and have everyone sort of do their own thing because it, with the justified argument that, well, there's no center potentially giving us money. And what happened in the last decade was a total disaster as we just had to do austerity. So we we shouldn't have to do that again in recognizing that you're not, the EU is not going to be providing us money. So we just need to basically make this a looser formula. But it, it's sort of fudging the kind of basic principles of having a monetary union. You're right. I mean, the problem here is that we normally you have a, a state, you have an army, and you have a currency, right? These three things tend to go together. In Europe, you have, you know, 27, but only 19 are part of the euro. There's no state. There is a work in progress to a European defense system, but then you have NATO and, you know, we are not a political union. So basically, you have two sorts of problems. Uh, on the economic side, it would make sense to have a federal structure and to have this so-called Hamiltonian moment that you had in the US by which there's federal debt. And in exchange for that, individual states cannot have a deficit or a large deficit. Here, you cannot do that because the welfare state, as it is constructed in European countries, already has a lot of public spending and the federal level is not big enough. So you would have to adjust that. But the logic is moving towards that system. Then the problem is institutional because uh, you, you, you explain it very well. But in fact, the institution calling the shots and putting the criticizing the countries or putting the fines is the European Commission. And what we cannot have is to go back to a stability and growth pact, which is now suspended, but will be reactivated if it's not reformed as it was before, suspended in 2020. Countries could you know, go and spend if it was necessary. But then if you go back to the old rules, the commission will have to tell countries, hey, you have to cut your deficit and your debt by large amounts. It's politically impossible to do it. So either the commission says things that member states don't follow, which is bad for the institutional structure of the EU, or it doesn't say so, and then countries go on and then there's more difficulties in, in having mutual debt. So, so the win-win the, the situation, I would say, would be uh, for, for some of the countries that are less frugal to recognize that you need adjustment. That's true. After COVID, some countries that have high levels of debt need to do something. The Germans have a point when they say, hey, you know, if some countries have the retirement age at 67 and we have it at uh, 69, uh, let's adjust that before. Or if your black market economy is 20%, maybe Italy, then an hour is 10%, then go on and, and, and collect some more taxes before you ask about uh, money for, for from the European. And I look at my trains, would say a German, they are much worse than those in Spain, right? And this came from European money. So they have a point. 
But at this point, probably uh, it, it would be more useful to look forward, understand the geopolitical situation, have a different consensus, and maybe understand that we need some, some form of uh, industrial policy, a bigger role of the state, uh, and, and there's a transformation going on in the world that will affect the internal dynamics of European integration. So you talked about the commission, but what kind of role do you foresee for the central bank in the next few years? Uh, you've talked about the Fed has increased interest rates much more often and higher than the ECB. And I'm curious if you see a need, regardless of appetite, for the ECB to have a more hands-on role as we're talking about other areas of policy that are likely or potentially should be marching toward more integration. Well, the ECB is the most independent technocratic central bank of all, even more than the Fed or the Bank of England. And the only thing they, they do is raise interest rates or reduce interest rates And that's how it should be in terms of legitimacy. It's how it should be. Uh, during the Eurozone crisis, there were accusations that, you know, by giving or not liquidity to Greek banks, it was, they were getting involved into politics and they are technocrats. They have done a number of reports on, you know, for example, the role of the euro as an international currency in a more geoeconomic world and other things. They always recommend that uh, governments do the structural reforms that are necessary to promote economic growth and then to do the fiscal reforms and the fiscal union that everybody recognizes as, as a necessity. For example, Mario Draghi, who was uh, the most famous president of the ECB and saved the euro in 2012, now that he then was the prime minister of Italy, but then now he's retired and he can say things and he says all the time, let's do the fiscal union, let's do the structural reforms. So the ECB will probably be fixated on the evolution of inflation, probably the interest rates in Europe will either not go up more or go up a little bit more. The Fed probably is done with raising rates, we'll see. Uh, but they will concentrate more on inflation because if, if they get into the politics, then there's this discussion of uh, legitimacy. And one thing the European Union learned the hard way uh, during the financial crisis is that people thought that technocrats had too much power, especially on the bailouts and the... And the financial crisis response, the rise of austerity. And historically, there's been this so-called democratic deficit because, you know, the voter in a small village in France doesn't feel that people in Brussels at the European Parliament really represent them. Uh, so it's better to, to keep the technocrats at their level and let the, you know, politics uh, work out uh, for the solution. Maybe let's talk a bit about Spain and in particular Italy, who is going to be the huge recipient of the next gen EU funding. I think Italy's roughly, what is it, 200 it's, billion? It's 210. 210 uh, yeah. billion. And part of this is that Italy has had sort of no real economic growth over the last 20 years. And then this facility was developed in response to the pandemic when suddenly it looked like the Italian population being hit by the pandemic was turning against the EU. And it was Merkel, as well as her finance minister at the time, Olaf Scholz, Macron and others that proposed this. What is this doing for the Italian economy? The Italian economy for much of the last decade was sort of this ticking time bomb of you thought Greece was bad. Well, if Italy, you know, with its huge budget deficits ends up going down and, it, and, and there's a kind of run on Italian banks and then, you know, the euro could collapse. So where is Italy right now? Because we don't seem to be hearing as much about it. It's about Germany, not Italy. Right? Uh, yes, you're right. I mean, the, the problems in the eurozone crisis with small countries... Greece, Ireland, Portugal were manageable, but you know a serious problem in Italy or Spain was not, and that's why Madrid or Draghi acted in 2012, buying the debt of these countries. The problem of Italy is that basically it has not experienced economic growth since the 1990s because it has not done 
any economic reform. So countries like Spain had booms and went down, and overall they are much richer than 20 years ago. Italy is kind of flat, and, and the income distribution problems are, are also important. So many people in Italy actually identify the creation of the euro in 1999 with the collapse of economic growth. And I would disagree. It has to do with other things. Politics in Italy are very complicated. You have talked about this in this podcast. And, and it's very complicated and difficult to implement reforms. So the next generation EU funds, actually, what they had uh, as, as the main philosophy is we're going to provide funding to pay for the countries to do the reforms that are politically difficult, like, you know, reform of the labor market, uh, liberalization of certain protected sectors on, on services, pensions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, in some countries like Spain, I would say this logic and dynamic is working a bit better. The problem with Italy is that it had a change of government and therefore uh, Giorgia Meloni had sent a new proposal to change how she would use part of the funding, which has become problematic. And then just as it happens with the IRA in the US, it's difficult to spend so much money in a transparent, competitive, efficient manner. So there are going to be delays. But I would say that if you look at Italy, Italy has two positive things. It has a, a, a very bad thing, which is a level of debt to GDP that is above 150%, which is too high. But then on the other hand, it has a primary surplus. This means that if you take out the interest they paid on debt every year, their revenue is higher than their spending. So that's good. Their debt is not in the hands of foreigners. So it's mostly domestic savers like Japan, which are easier to tax. So that's, that's important in terms of a bank grant or a default. So I would say at, at this point, what, what matters is first for the Italian government to continue to be pro-European and constructive, which is the case, uh, even with the changing government. And then the logic of next generation EU probably is the way forward for countries uh, you know, to be uh, persuaded to do the difficult reforms in exchange for funding. And let's hope that this works. Maybe to finish this conversation, since we try often to take you know, this uh, U.S. lens on what's happening in Europe. There's been a lot of narrative here that, you know, Europe is spendthrift. It's gone through austerity over the last few years. It's kind of stuck in this rut of very just low growth. How much of this since, well, you're from Europe, but now you're spending quite a bit of time in the U.S. How much of this do you think is still accurate? What are U.S. policymakers maybe not understanding about what's happening in, in Europe and p perhaps is there a little bit more of a positive story coming out of it? Can I add one, one additional stereotype? And that's that European regulations, EU regulations sort of stifle the innovation that we see, for instance, in our tech sector. So we have all this tech growth here in the U.S. and then you look at Europe and you don't see anything uh, near equivalent, no, no VC culture, all the things that then have sort of generated us having this huge tech boom. Well, I would say part of that is true. And I would say in the last 20 years, and especially after the global financial crisis, 2008, US GDP kept up growing. So there was a recession in 2009 and then a very fast recovery in 2010. Europe's experienced more than four years of slow growth with a double recession because of the Greek crisis in, in 2010-11. Uh, and then uh, with COVID, the same. Uh, European GDP collapsed in 2020. It didn't recovery until 2021, 2022, depends on the country. In the US, it was a matter of months. Uh, so, so the capacity to react in the US has, has been more effective. And therefore, comparisons of GDP per capita actually show that there's a higher gap than 15 years ago. On the other hand, you can argue, and it's true, 
that uh, if you look at productivity, uh, Europeans have more vacation. You know, the famous French holidays and others. So you, you put the Europeans to work as many hours as the Americans and you'll probably get a higher GDP. It's a political decision not to do it. And it depends on what are your priorities in life. So that's another thing that's reasonable to say. But I would say that on your point, Max, about tech, this is important. Radical innovations tend to happen more and more often outside of Europe. They happen in the US, they happen in Israel, they happen in China now. They happen in the UK on the financial side as well. And Europe needs you know, to improve on this ecosystem uh, of uh, innovation. Europeans tend to be very good at what's so sometimes called uh, you know, gradual innovation. So you invent something in the US and then a German would put a, a small improvement on that. But you know, we are in a world in which this kind of innovation is important. And the role of big tech and the, the enormous importance of big companies, which are mostly American or Chinese and, and not European, uh, is something that is something we should worry about. So this is calls for some reforms. Yeah, it strikes me that Europe has a lot of national public goods. Your trains work. The schools aren't crumbling. Healthcare. Healthcare. Pensions. Um, but this is where the European public goods at a European level become sort of an issue. You know, the building infrastructure, uh, you know, for energy sector, defense, or others across the European level. So final question. Spain having the presidency of the EU highlighting the need for EU public goods. Do you expect anything to happen over the next few months at the EU level where there'll be some commitments to, man, we really got to generate some EU-wide funding for these EU public goods? Not very much, to be honest. I expect, if we're lucky, a good reform of the stability and growth pact, the fiscal rules, more specific funds uh, to support Ukraine that could be perhaps mutualized, so finance collectively, and maybe something on industrial policy uh, and, and the transition uh, towards a decarbonized economy. But that would be probably all, not, not big steps. The problem with the European Union is you always expect, you know, this big, big leap forward and never happens. Yeah. Next in EU is pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, you get six pages of summit conclusions and hope that something comes out of that. Yeah. The, the novelty, if anything, is that the international environment and the risks even coming from this part of the Atlantic, if there's a change in the White House, uh, Europeans are worried about that possibility and what that would entail for NATO, uh, defense, etc. So the international environment might trigger some changes domestically, and that would be a good thing for European integration. Thank you, Federico. This was a fantastic intro overview into all things Europe's economy, and we'll be looking at what happens at the presidency of the EU and Spain uh, very closely. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. You may also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Finally, please check out our new executive education course, Beyond the Battlefield, Global Implications of Russia's War in Ukraine, where we'll unpack how Russia's continued war on Ukraine has been impacting domestic and foreign policies inside Russia, throughout the transatlantic community, and across the globe. Please consider registering if you're an experienced professional working in the development, defense, or international security space. Our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Sarah Stromberg and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.